Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the fabulous Teppy Center for the Arts. How's everyone doing tonight? Well, you sound We have a great show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. This is a special edition of our Class Clowns Comedy event featuring Rich Scheider. Let's hear it for Rich Scheider, ladies and gentlemen. We only have two roles here, ladies and gentlemen. First one is that we straighten out the microphone. <laughs> yes. The second one is that you uh, uh, have as much fun as humanly possible, and that you keep any table conversation around you to a minimum so everyone can enjoy the show. Uh, is everybody ready for, ready for the show to begin? <laughs> All right, a warm welcome, please, if you would, for your host and MC for the evening, Tony Visick. I know you. You hitchhike. 
Yeah, a fired Uber driver picked you up for old time's sake. I have no idea what I'm talking about now. Anyway, uh, they can listen to the show live on ComedySchoolsRadio.com, where we get, and there's a lot of great interviews and shows there. You want to check that out. Uh, my wife and I, Shirley, put this together. We have our own, if you're over 50, internet-based radio station. If you're under 50, it's a podcast. So, um, <laughs> and if you're under 50, I have no damned interest in you anyway. So, <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the show to start? Yeah. Yes, you are. Tony Stager, to kick off the festivities, the man who I say I like, but uh, yeah, no, I like him. Uh, uh, he does a lot of shows with me. We work together uh, uh, all the time. He does, anytime I've got a great show coming up and I need someone on the show to kick it off well, I call this guy up and go, Guillermo, will you come down and help us out? And he's done it tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Guillermo Roman. <laughs> you to come out in such uh, stormy weather in Arizona. <laughs> I was scared driving here tonight. It's like 72 degrees out. I'm like, oh, I hope I make it. <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm having a really bad day. Uh, but uh, yeah, my name is Guillermo, Guillermo de Jesus Julian Robles Chapetón. <laughs> but you guys can call me doctor. <laughs> Dr. Guillermo de Jesús Julián Robles Chapotón. <laughs> Why not? You're going to mess it up anyway. Might as well do it by calling me doctor. So um, I'm having a really hard time right now because I'm fighting the urge to cross the river to Scottsdale. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody calls me Jose. <laughs> and when they get lazy, they call me things like G-Mo, G-Man, G-Money. G, you're getting fat. <laughs> I'm not. I'm already there. <laughs> ah, man, my name is like... A couple of weeks ago, at another show, this lady introduced me as a big, scary Mexican. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's not funny. <laughs> That hurts my feelings because I'm a big scary Guatemalan. 
Big difference. Two borders. We're in better shape. So I was born in Guatemala. Those of you who don't know, Guatemala is a very poor third world country. As a matter of fact, have you seen any commercials for World Vision? Sponsor a child for $20? See, I can watch those commercials because it hits too close to home. As a matter of fact, the kids on those commercials, we used to call them those who made it in show business. <laughs> and once they got the commercial, those kids turned into divas. Yeah. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the attitude, so I, I came to the United States, and I moved to LA. And then I went to Hollywood, and I realized there's more divas in Hollywood even. So when I can stand it here, and I came to Scottsdale. No, not because of the divas, but because I like to be discriminated against. <laughs> with that, what is wrong with that, I ask you? So, um, yeah, I'm an Arizona resident now. And, you know, with, uh, things are changing, you know, as I said, like, you know, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm getting fat. I've got to be honest. Not like I can hide it. Getting ready to come here. I'm getting ready in front of the mirror in the bathroom. My son says to me, Daddy, why do you like to wear dark clothing? And I said, Well, Mijo, that's because dark clothing makes you look thinner. <laughs> he goes, No, Dad, darkness would make you look thinner. Get <laughs> <laughs> no love at home. I'm like, You're right. Last night, I went to a, I went to a restaurant, uh, IHOP. You know, by the way, going by, by the name, should I be called, like, I've got gout? <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud. Anyway, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, and I, I, I help, and after I, this waitress comes up to me and says, Honey, did you, did you save some room for dessert? And I said, really, look at me. Room for dessert. I've spent the last 20 years of my life building a warehouse facility around my waist, <laughs> specifically for the surf. I'm a little deep for crying out loud. Yeah, that's fine. So, you know, I, I get daily reminders. The other night, I'm laying in bed, shirtless, you know, on Facebook. <laughs> you know, just going through and with a huge bucket of nachos right next to me. <laughs> and nacho cheese spread all over my chest. <laughs> it was delicious. <laughs> you guys think it's disgusting, but my wife didn't mind. <laughs> because she left me five years ago. <laughs> You know what? That's a story for another day. Let me tell you something. Um, I'm going to give you something, but you're going to go back to school on Monday, and I want you to at least take one joke that you can tell your friends, okay? <laughs> All right. My favorite joke. Wrote it when I was seven years old. A little bit younger than you, but hopefully it works. All right. Mother balloon and baby balloon are floating across the desert. Baby balloon turns to mommy and says, Look, mommy, I got the 
I can do this all day, brother. Alright guys, I'm gonna leave you with a quote from my very favorite comedian. My name is Guillermo. Thank you very much. Stylings of Floyd Haas. How's everybody doing tonight? Yeah. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. You folks like impressions? Yeah. I don't do any. I'll show you why I don't do any. I've been working on one. Let's see if you folks can get this. Okay, it's uh, David. David, why did I just tell my mother to go to Atlanta? They will go from Independence Day. That guy Harvey Firestein, right? See, it's not. It's Miley Cyrus. <laughs> feel kind of bad for Miley because uh, her parents got divorced recently. Her mom cited irreconcilable differences. You see, uh, she's a music lover. <laughs> and he's Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> Somebody else that got a divorce recently was Matt and Amy, the people from Little People, Big World. But it's amicable, and they're going to split everything 25-25. <laughs> That's the end of the math. Okay. Probably shouldn't be talking like this. I'm a grandpa. In fact, I have a new grandson. Oh, thanks. I see some of you folks hesitated, right? I said, new. Of course he's new. I mean, sure, we looked at used. But we were able to get the brand new grandson that we really wanted. Thanks to the government new program, Cash for Crawlers. And this is not our first grandchild. My oldest is my daughter, Amy. She's 33. And uh, she has a little baby boy, the little baby boy, and a little girl that's 12. And the little 12-year-old girl and I were watching the Justin Bieber roast, and she was getting sad and upset because they were talking about all the girls that Justin Bieber had been with. Honey, you don't understand. You could never be Justin Bieber's girlfriend. You're only 12 years old, and Justin Bieber's already gay. And Amy and I will take the little 12 year or the little baby with us shopping. We put him in the shopping cart and we'll push him around. And it never fails. Somebody will walk up to us and go, Oh my gosh, what a cute little baby boy. And look, he looks just like his daddy. And they point to me. I know it totally creeps us out too. Not just because they're implying that we've been together, but because we both feel we could do better. <laughs> we have a new addition to our household too. We have a 12 year old girl. And in our house, we don't like to use the term adopted because she's more of a rescue. And our youngest son is Tanner. Tanner's 15. He and his wife don't have any children. 
and my oldest son is Travis, and Travis works for the Castle Boutique. Everybody familiar with the Castle Boutique? Okay, maybe some card holders here or something. Uh, anyhow, if you're not familiar with it, the Castle Boutique is an adult toy store, and they actually have the second largest collection of dildos under one roof. The largest collection of dildos under one roof is Congress. <laughs> Uh, do I have any other grandparents here tonight? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Okay. You, you folks know how I feel, right? Yeah, nice try. <laughs> you folks know how I feel, right? We don't feel like grandparents. I mean, look at me. I'm only 57 years old, and I'm in perfect physical shape. <laughs> I don't think that you're judging me fairly. I uh, got something on my shirt, and I had to wear my Halloween costume. I went as bloated Charlie Sheen. That's why I look like two and a half men. <laughs> I've tried a few of those things though, you know, I'm, I'm trying the, uh, they say that you should eat eight almonds a day, anybody else try to do that? I don't know, it seems to be working, but it seems to be canceling itself out with all of the candy bars that I have to eat <laughs> to get the eight almonds. <laughs> it's like they purposely short you, right? Like they're saying, people are only buying these to get healthy and we're going to make them eat two of them. But uh, I... I am trying to lose weight. Is anybody else? Really? It seems like there should be more. I, you folks know I can see you, right? I mean, this, this isn't like one of those places where all the lights are out. I may not be able to see everybody's faces, but I can see shapes. But we don't feel like grandparents, right? Until we have these realizations that occur. Like, for example, uh, my wife's realization occurred one day when we, we walked into uh, the bedroom and we saw our oldest granddaughter. She's going through my wife's jewelry box and taking out her grandmother's jewelry and trying it on and looking at herself in the mirror. Tears started to roll down my wife's cheek because we'd seen our own daughter do this with her grandmother's jewelry box and it seemed just like yesterday. My grandpa realization actually occurred after something had happened when I realized I just licked whipped cream off of somebody's grandma. Is that like what happened with you folks? I, I just have to tell you that, uh, you know, I, I, if you ever want to try this, you want to use the stuff in the tub because the spray stuff, it doesn't hold up well during, uh, you know, hot flashes. <laughs> But uh, the, the other night we were, uh, well, actually things have changed for my wife and I uh, over the years, especially in the intimacy department. For example, the other night we were laying in bed next to each other and I asked her, so you want to hook up? She texted me back and said, sure. <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> Folks, you've been a lot of fun. Enjoy the rest of the show, okay? really been great for me. I hope you, you are really great for my friend, my buddy, Mr. Kendall Kessler. Keep it going for Floyd. My name's Kendall. I usually follow that up with an I'm an alcoholic and that's the truth. Uh, you can just call me Kendall tonight. I've reached that age in life where I no longer have to smoke and drink. 
to get dizzy and disoriented. <laughs> All I have to do is bend over or stand up real fast. <laughs> it's gotten so bad here lately, and I won't even put on my shoes and socks without having a safety net around. <laughs> I was growing up, I used to think of nap time as a punishment. Now I look at it as a short vacation. <laughs> The biggest lie I tell myself is, I don't need to write that down, I'm going to remember it. Right. I've also discovered a new meaning for getting lucky. It doesn't mean what it used to. Getting lucky now is walking into a room and remembering what I went into. I had a motto growing up, live fast, die young, Leave a good looking corpse. You really messed that up. <laughs> Notice that food is starting to replace sex in my life. So much so, I'm having a hard time getting into my own pants. <laughs> I've been battling weight my whole life. I used to tell people I was a bulimic of the non-purging type. <laughs> now I just tell them I'm retaining water. <laughs> and food. I've tried several ways to lose weight. I even went so far as to join the gym. It was there I discovered I was allergic to exercise. <laughs> my face got all flush, my heart rate went up, I got short of breath, and I started sweating profusely. <laughs> right after that, I went and turned myself into the fitness protection program. <laughs> I didn't make it to the gym today. That makes seven years in a row. <laughs> I've decided I'm gonna stop calling the bathroom the John. I'm gonna start calling it Jim. <laughs> that way, when I tell people I went to the gym this morning, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> During my last physical, I started getting a big head when I heard the doctor say, Wow, that's big and hard. <laughs> and then I realized this was my prostate exam. <laughs> I looked at one of those height and weight charts. And I made a wonderful discovery. I'm not overweight. I'm under tall. <laughs> According to that chart, I'm supposed to be seven foot nine. <laughs> I don't know when I get to start growing again. I asked my doctor to prescribe me Viagra in the 10 milligram tablets. She says, that's kind of a small dose, isn't it? And I said, doc, what I do with it is I cut it in half and I take it just before I go to bed. That way if I have to get up and pee in the middle of the night, I don't hit my feet. <laughs> it also helps keep me from rolling out of bed. And <laughs>
have a question, are rainbow trout part of the gay community? <laughs> you know, life is not a fairy tale. If you lose your shoes at midnight, you're probably drunk. <laughs> Why do I have to plus one for English when all they do is transfer me to somebody I can't understand? <laughs> I changed the sound of my car horn to gunshots. People get out of my way real fast. <laughs> Those are the good old days when girls used to cook like their mothers. Now they drink like their fathers. <laughs> that's my time. <laughs>
stage. Very funny, great guy, Stuart Preston. Sun Devil, I got Sun Devils out there. Yeah. So uh, I've been married for a long time, but I still get in trouble for things that I didn't do. You know, I'll give you an example. My wife and I like to watch this show called Humans. I don't know if you guys have seen this show. It's obviously about you know robots, but the thing is, the lady robots are totally sexy. So when I'm watching the show with my wife, immediately I'm in trouble. But not for something I didn't do, for something I can't even do. For something that doesn't exist. You know, because she knows what I'm thinking. She knows I'm thinking these robots will do things that she's just not willing to do. You know, like the dishes, the laundry, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I know, I know. I know. But she looks at me and she says, if you ever had sex with a robot, I would no longer find you attractive. I was like, Carl, you're married for 23 years. You find me attractive? <laughs> you know, and I, I try to stay in shape for her, so it's not surprising. I know it's not working. I said try, I'm not Yoda, you know? But I joined a gym recently. Yeah, I went in there for the first time a couple weeks ago to cancel my membership. Yeah, you can't phone that one in. They make you go in there, right? So I go in there, and I'm talking to this 19-year-old smiling muscle kid trying to explain to him why my health is no longer important to me, right? And as I'm saying it, he gets upset, you know? And he's like, I just don't get it. Don't you want to come here after work and burn off the stress? I was like, no, I got a family waiting for me at home. I got to stop by a bar and throw down a couple shots before I get there. And I think that hurt his feelings. He started looking really sad. And so I looked at him, I was like, listen, man, it's not you, it's me. There are a lot of fat guys out there. You're going to find somebody. Yeah, so we're dating now. We're dating now. But speaking of working out, you know, the sore muscles and all that, it makes me really grateful that we have the medical marijuana law here in Arizona. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, the legal marijuana didn't pass. You know, when that failed, I don't know about you, but my back started to hurt. Started getting migraines, you know, I felt a little cancery. You know? So I went in there and I got my medical card, went down to the dispensary. I don't know if you've ever been through a dispensary for the first time, but it's kind of like combining a, a candy store with back-to-school shopping. <laughs> you know, they're just like throwing stuff at you. So I get home and I've got this box, you know, full of all this pot stuff. And I don't really know what to do with it, because up until that point, I had never tried a drug my entire life. True story. Never tried a drug. Because I always thought, you know, breathing smoke or stabbing myself with a needle, yeah, I'm just going to wait for those brownies. <laughs> but I look in there and I'm like, where am I going to get started with this? So I start with, think the gummy bears. Now I did some research. I know they can take a little while, right? So I ate one gummy bear, sat there waiting, not remembering that my bud tender had told me to take a third of one. Right? So I sat there waiting and uh, nothing. Right? So I'm like, take another one. <laughs> Sit there waiting. Nothing. So my first thought is, Maybe I'm supposed to eat the whole bag. Yeah. yeah, don't worry, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But my second thought, you know, was suddenly I felt like I was on a roller coaster and had just downed a fifth of Jack Daniels. 
you know, these gummy bears whack you out. I'm never going to eat any more of those things. I got rid of those things on Halloween. <laughs> so uh, there's, a, there's this new gadget coming out. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's a toilet seat scale. Yeah, you know, Wazy as you're doing your business. You ever seen that thing? I, you know, as I've done my research on this, I found women, some women, are already taking that measurement. Right, but guys, you know what we're thinking. High score. <laughs> yeah, we're hooking that thing up to the internet and starting a fantasy league. We're going to call that thing Battle of the Bowel Movements. We're going to put the results up on those TVs at Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> you know, I think we'd make an excellent sponsor for that, don't you think? I mean, how long until we turn it into an Olympic event? The thrill of victory, the agony of the feces. Right? But I think once we got that thing hooked up to the internet, it's going to make Facebook updates a lot more interesting. Everybody's just talking crap on there anyway. I don't know, I that was cheap. So it's at this point in my show, my set, when I, you guys are probably going to be grateful to hear that I do have a day job, right? Which means I have the benefit of driving to work every day in rush hour. You know, which every morning I wake up, and I just feel like going out there and doing good and helping people. Ten minutes on the highway, I don't want to kill somebody. You know, it's happy to hate in ten minutes. Or as we say in my family, Thanksgiving. Right? Yeah, but all this, all this traffic is caused by accidents from distracted drivers. Now, I know this because the other day, I was driving home from work, and I was reading this blog. Yeah, yeah. And it said over 400,000 people are hurt every year because of distracted driving. Right, Bob? You know, and I couldn't believe it, so I texted my wife. I was like, can you believe this? You know? She couldn't believe it, but a couple minutes later, she's texting me. And she's like, hey, honey, you see those storm clouds out there? And I was like, I'm driving home from work. I don't have time to look at clouds. I got emails to get through. If I'm lucky, an episode of The Walking Dead. So speaking of my wife, she and I decided to homeschool our kids. Because our attitude is, why should we trust our kids' education to the public school system when they can learn math from two people who failed algebra three times? <laughs> but it turns out that teaching math is not even the problem. The challenge is teaching history. Because how do you relate something that happened 200 years ago to a couple of kids that you know, sit around texting and tweeting all day? Well, when I had to teach the Declaration of Independence, I put it in their context. So I put it like this. I was like, all right, kiddos, here's how it went down. The Founding Fathers decided to declare independence from England. So they all gathered around Thomas Jefferson as he wrote that famous text message. <laughs> We're just not that into you. We're breaking up. <laughs> Said. And then they waited nervously for what must have felt like minutes. When a reply finally came back in, they're like, what does it say? What does it say? It says, who is this? <laughs> like, oh, man, did you text France by accident? And right at that moment, John Hancock yells out, he tweeted, he tweeted, King George tweeted, says, at colonies, I'm coming for you, hashtag redcoats. <laughs> Paul Revere starts tweeting, the British are coming, the British are coming, hashtag revolution. <laughs> Patrick Green posts a selfie on Instagram, give me liberty or give me death. And by the time Betsy Ross gets involved, the whole revolution ends up on Pinterest. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, that's my time. <laughs> so it's a real honor for me to introduce one of my comedy mentors, one of my really close friends, the very, very funny Gordon Ramsay. Just kidding, just kidding. Give him a big hand. Gordon Ramsay, perfect day, everybody. Gordon McKay. Got to tell my client this is what you get. 
You can go kiss my ass. <laughs> Get up, lad. Let's do a press, guys. Yeah, Stuart's good. He's a nice guy. Um, it, it, the, the reason why he said Ramsey, uh, my name is Gordon McKay, and I'm Scottish. Uh, that's Scotland. That's the other Ireland. Where we don't believe that midgets are goddamn magic. Because we're not that damn drunk, I guess, if you think about it. Um, I, it's, I have no problem with uh, Irish people. Never have. Uh, I just have a problem with the Scots music. You know, the Celtic music with the bagpipe. That's the worst piece of shit music that God ever put on the face of the earth. <laughs> it really is. Think about what it is. All right, what, what is a bagpipe? It's a sheep's stomach and, or a cow's stomach with reeds stuck into it and then you blow into it. It's technically a reverse fart. <laughs> it's horrendous music. You know what I mean? I've never, and I just, and I, I've never liked mobile music. If you think about it, have you? No. no, of course, you sit there like a normal person and play it stationary. <laughs> Don't walk up to me playing your horse shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it, it's like mariachi music, all right? Mariachi music is exactly like prostitution. You pay for them to leave. That's, <laughs> just get out of my face. <laughs> Uh, and the thing about being Scottish here is I, I always be mistaken for being Irish. And uh, I have no problem with that. I just don't like to be mistaken for people who starve from not eating a potato. <laughs> don't groan to that. <laughs> they starve from not eating a potato. How do you do that? You live on an island where you can fish. You know, the sad part about everyone from from uh, Ireland moved to New England and then they created New England clam chowder, which is basically potato soup. <laughs> all, the, all the clams. And the funny part, where's the clams at? The clams are down here and they still can't find the fish up here. What are you looking for down there? Sea potatoes? <laughs> I'm not mistaken. Uh, and it's pretty much the most Caucasian thing you can ever eat is potatoes and clam chowder. Think about what's in it. You've got potatoes, clams, milk. It's basically everything that's ever seen the light of day. It's Caucasian stew. <laughs> you put it under a heat lamp, it will get melanoma. <laughs> I am like everyone else in this place. I'm trying to work out. It's not going well. Uh, I go to Planet Fitness. You ever been there? Yeah. Hey, did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. How's a pizza night? Jim has a pizza night. Has a pizza night. Like, like I'm trying to run, and there's a bucket of Tootsie Rolls in the corner. There's a bucket of endorphins in the corner, and you're making me run. I lay press 475 pounds. What am I doing for that? What am I, am I trying to be a furniture dolling? And the weirdest part is, 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 I'm just sick and tired of having to look at women in, in just in yoga pants. Don't because uh, I don't like looking at things I can't have. <laughs> and if you're not like every guy knows this, because of yoga pants leaves no room for imagination. And I'm just sitting there looking at a woman in yoga pants is like looking at a ball ball wrap for Christmas. I'm just sitting there, just imagine where all the holes are. <laughs> 
fingers can go there. I'm just all crinkly with a piece of pizza in my hand, you know? And they're all doing this machine, whatever the hell this machine is. <laughs> this. I, I call it the bipolar whore machine. Like, my daddy hates me, my daddy loves me, my daddy hates me, my daddy loves me. And sit there and look at this garbage. by doing manual labor. Me and every Mexican in this town would be a ninja by now. You guys have been great tonight, all right? Next couple coming up, great guy, get up for Mike Ramsey. for coming out tonight. Hey, a quick hand for all the comics you've seen tonight. They were really good. <laughs> Just have to get through me, then you can see Rich. <laughs> I uh, like to sleep naked. It's oh. <laughs> a great start. <laughs> I like to sleep naked, but it, that really seems to bother a lot of people that are on the same flight. <laughs> I flew out to LA. I got to perform for one of my comedy idols, Louis C.K. That was an awesome experience. Up until afterwards, when I met him, and he's like, you know, you remind me of an unfunny Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> I'm like, wow. <laughs> F you, C.K. <laughs> Now, when I was out in Hollywood, I kept thinking, you know, they're remaking all these old classic movies into new ones, which are horrible. And I'm like, you know, I could probably do a better job than that. Like, I would remake the movie Cocktail, but I'd have it star Bill Cosby. <laughs> you would not fall asleep watching that one. Or you could remake a new version of Transformers and have it star Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> You'd watch it. <laughs> or I'd do a remake of Predator and have it star my old Catholic priest. <laughs> True story. Uh, that, that's actually the moment I knew I was getting old when I walked by a priest. Didn't even look at me. <laughs> I'm just really not a big fan of actors. Like, I knew this one actor that would always say, oh, working with kids and animals is the worst. And that really pissed me off, because he works in porn. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Actually, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life is when my parents caught me watching hardcore midget porn <laughs> over their shoulders. <laughs> Fun fact about midget porn. If you rewind it, it looks like she's giving birth. 
Like seriously, the most excited I get watching it is when they deliver the pizza. <laughs> and then I get mad they never eat it. Like I was watching one with this girl, she's like, this is kind of hot, right? And I'm like, well, it better be because that pizza's getting cold. <laughs> so, I don't know if you saw yesterday in the news, there's a new celebrity sex tape out. And it's not someone you want, it's Bill Gates. Oh. Right? <laughs> now, I watched the video for research purposes. I don't really know if it's him, but the video definitely made me Microsoft. <laughs> now, Microsoft is actually getting in the marijuana business with it being legalized everywhere. Which surprised me because I always thought marijuana was a gateway drug. Okay, now, if this was 1995, that's the joke of the night right there. Seriously, you'd go home and page your friends about it. Now, I've never smoked weed personally, but I did vote to legalize it. I mean, the fact is, some senators haven't even, even admitted to smoking it, which I believe makes weed the only thing in the Senate that's ever been passed. <laughs> now, I know there's some of you out there that are saying, God, his parents must be so proud. <laughs> and when I was born, they were really disappointed. They were really hoping for a divorce. <laughs> Sad but true. But my dad once told me that one man's trash is another man's treasure. And then he sped away from the orphanage. <laughs> Got uh, baseball starting up again. And for all the Diamondback fans, Chase Field is putting in a Filiberto's. So this season, I think the fans are going to lead the league in runs. <laughs> I was walking down the street the other day and this girl starts winking at me and I'm like, nice. But as I'm saying hi to her, I realize, oh, she's having a stroke. <laughs> I know, that was embarrassing. I got kicked out of Walmart. I saw a shirt they were selling that had brown pride on it. So I went up and asked if they had it in white. <laughs> Uh, I haven't been to Walmart since I saw a woman stealing tampons. In fact, I caught her red-handed. <laughs> it's Walmart. These things happen. <sighs> what else I got? <laughs> I have anything funny on here? Uh, you know, a man died recently choking on a hot dog during a national hot dog eating competition which is a terrible way to go out, finishing dead last. <laughs> and Lance Armstrong says, because he survived cancer, he deserves to not only compete in the Tour de France again, but he should have all his victories reinstated. I'm like, can you believe the ball on that guy? <laughs> and a 58-year-old man in Florida was arrested for having sex with an alligator. It's Florida. These things happen. 
And I don't know what's worse, the fact that he got caught wearing Crocs, <laughs> or that he now has Gatorades. <laughs> Now, Chris Brown said if he wasn't a singer and dancer, he'd like to be a blackjack dealer, which is not surprising he'd want a job where you keep hitting people until they decide to stay. Is he here? This is fine. That better be funny now. My friend tried to start a therapy group for people that have trouble with orgasms but nobody came. <laughs> you know what really annoys me is when you're in the bathroom and someone starts talking to you. Isn't that irritating? Like I'm sitting there using the restroom and all of a sudden there's somebody right next to me going, hey, get out of the women's room. <laughs> like I thought it didn't matter at Target. <laughs> My mistake. So I'm single. Spoiler. I was in a relationship with a great girl for six years. In fact, the first time we went out, she fell head over heels in love. I fell in love the first time she put her heels over her head. But you know, like a lot of relationships, they didn't really work out. Like towards the end, she was drinking with her girlfriend. The girlfriend's like, my boyfriend is an angel. And I'm like, and my girl was like, you are so lucky. Mine's still alive. <laughs> I know. But then I got back out on the dating scene. I tell you what, after being out for six years, it's tough nowadays. Like, I went out with this one girl. She was beautiful, but she was also super religious, and I had no filter. And I'm like, we're talking about music, and she's like, well, I love any band that Jesus would like. I'm like, well, I bet he's not a fan of Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> and no second date there. Uh, but, you know, I, it, it's funny I even get dates being that I'm a broke comedian. Like, seriously, one girl I dated, we had sex in the backseat of my house. <laughs> She was one of those girls, too, that's really into choking. So for Valentine's Day, I had got her Atlanta Falcons jersey. <laughs> Never forget. I, then I dated a Japanese girl, which was great, but, you know, it was just breaking up with her. It was a nightmare. Had to drop the bomb on her twice before she got the message. <laughs> far, LOL, 
I'm not good at flirting. Uh, but my phone auto-corrects it to say, but you're too fat. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> and she quickly texts back, she's like, did you just call me fat? I'm like, oh crap, so I quickly text back, no. But my phone auto-corrects to say, moo. <laughs> That's my time. Thank you very much, guys. Enjoy it. Somebody got porno, but it's actually the news. And just weird. I just, it's, it, <laughs> I, it's, I don't know. Did everybody in the Trump administration talk to the Russians and forget? Yeah. Every one of them said, oh, that Russian. No, see, I thought you were talking about Russian dressing, and I don't eat Russian dressing. You want to know if I secretly made a deal with the Russian ambassador because they got weird pictures of me? No, no, yeah, no. You know, this Russian ambassador guy, he's got, he's like, kid he's, He's actually blackmailing everyone. You know, I saw you on TV the other day, uh, Attorney General Sessions, you look very good. You look good in this photo, too, where you're naked with a goat. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to do that joke. I just wanted to do it. I just want to get it out. Anyway, all right. Uh, it's a distinct pleasure to bring up uh, your headline this evening. Very funny guy. Um, a little known fact, ladies and gentlemen, the first time I ever worked in uh, Phoenix, Arizona was in... Uh, March, about a March, maybe first week of March of 1986, and uh, uh, 1986, they had a picture of me with goat and nude boy. <laughs> I was wearing prison suit and pig mask, it's fun. Uh, and uh, I was brought out as the opening act uh, for this gentleman here. Not only is he going to uh, really entertain you tonight, he's written a book, uh, I actually mentioned it in two lines as a former drug dealer, so I'm proud of that. Uh, uh, both of them, actually. So um, uh, this is a great book. You'll be selling them after the show right out there in the lobby, and he'll uh, autograph them, and you can take a photo and everything. So you want to stop by and say hi to him uh, before you leave. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome, please, for the author of this book, very funny man, my friend, Rich Scheidner. <laughs> something else came in. That's what I'm informing them right now. I do wear a suit on stage because I believe I'm at the age where I need to leave the house looking pumped and ready. Alright, that's one joke killed by the mic. I do, man. I do. Age, man. Everything changes when you get older. Everything. I get injured in my sleep. I go to bed, okay, I wake up with a limp. How's that happening? <laughs> I dream where I'm jogging and I fall in a hole, what happened there? <laughs> Everything changed. Your definition of fun changed. When you're young, fun is like bungee jumping, skydiving. You know what would be fun for me? A nap. <laughs> 
I don't have the energy I used to have. That guy live in America. We have far more energy drinks than any other country in the world. We must be the most tired nation on the planet, man. <laughs> you go into a store, the shelves are filled with a monster, rock star, five-hour energy drink. The problem is I'm too old. They don't work for me like they work for a younger person. You pour a Red Bull to me, it's like pouring jet fuel in an old lawnmower engine. <laughs> I don't quite turn over. <laughs> Just shudder and shake for a couple hours and pass out. <laughs> don't go anywhere anymore. I don't go out at night, man. Nine o'clock at night, I'm shutting it down. Lock the doors, check the windows, I am done for the day. I used to wonder who watched the nine o'clock news. I know now. <laughs> And I think back, you know, 30 years ago, I was out every night doing something, chasing something in the bars. Now the only thing comes close to old bar experience is when I shop at Costco. <laughs> Shopping at Costco is just like when I used to go out to the bars. I never know how much money I'm going to spend or what I'm going to bring home. <laughs> Costco is the biggest impulse buy store in the world, man. I go in there just to get some peanut butter, walk out with a power washer. <laughs> 50-gallon drum of mayonnaise, electric pump on top. 5,000 rolls of toilet paper, wooden pallet. I have to buy a new pickup truck from Costco, just my stuff from Costco at home. There's a lot of things I like about getting older. Nobody ever says to me anymore, hey man, you're wasting your potential. Potential's dried up and blown away. And I realize now, man, you know, I'm just like a grinder for in terms of money. I'm just a grinder. I'm never going to invent anything or create anything to make myself big money. I'm only shot big money to play the lottery. But like an idiot, I don't play it until it gets big, big numbers, you know. When it's a huge number. The rest of the time, I just walk up to a convenience store clerk. How much lottery pool right now? Five million? Now, that's not worth a buck. <laughs> Give me a slurpee instead, will you, man? Five million won't make a dent in my problems, pal. always worried about making the big money. I never notice how I waste a little money all the time. Like I got a landline telephone. Not only is that a waste of money that nobody ever calls a landline, but I, I have to get like the special little package, all the bells and whistles. Little little package has a call waiting, three-way calling. I never three-wayed anything in my life. Don't tease me now. And my favorite is call waiting. What happens with call waiting is I'm talking the phone to somebody, I hear both beep on the line. I put the person on hold I'm already talking to to tell the other person I can't talk to right now. This all cost me $35 a month. There used to be a busy scene when I did that job for free. See, I love doing that joke because older people laughing and younger people going, what's a busy scene? So close to talking Civil War battles now? What's going on out here? <laughs> That's been the biggest change in my life is the telephone. That's been the biggest change. When I grew up, there was one phone in the house. One phone was nailed to the kitchen wall, had about a three-foot cord. Every phone call was made there. And if you called somebody's house, you let it ring for 30, 40 times. Just in case they're out back digging a hole, give them a chance to answer the phone. <laughs> and the ringers were loud. You hear it. My dad would yell to the neighbors, Answer goddamn phone, where? <laughs> I never 
think a thing about it. When I was growing up, long distance were dirty words. My dad be like, don't you call long distance. You bankrupt. Somebody's out of the street, you call long distance. My dad had so many angles to beat the phone company. Like, if you want somewhere, you have to call home person first and collect phone call for yourself. My dad would answer the phone, and no, no, he's not here. All right, he made it. He's alive. <laughs> Stop crying, honey. The kid's alive. I just saved about $700 right there. <laughs> Pardon? Did... Now it's a text message. Are you working on your own jokes over there? What's going on? <laughs> I think you can tag that with text message. Go back there and work that out. Now, now the text message saves you 700. The text message cost you money. What am I trying to figure out your joke now? Okay. Are you heckling her or me? What's going on here right now? You're heckling her? Are uh, you guys a couple? How long have you been together? Uh, I love that. How are you doing? Uh, you had to bring up that, didn't you? You know how much? Twelve years. Twelve years, man. That's that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it changes, man. It changes. I know. I'm, like I don't even know. Like I'm single. I don't know. It's like that. It's nothing that you brag about. It's nothing. I go. Hey, I'm 64. I'm single. Ain't that great? You know. You, you know. It's just not even. It shouldn't be a category. You know. You just say you're like inedible. That should be it. You know? <laughs> what are you? You're 64. You just there's gamey. That's your category. Gamey. You, you're gamey. That's what you are. Gamey. You know? you're, you're no longer fit for human consumption. That's what you are. That's your category. I don't know where to check divorce, widow, what gamey, gamey. Check gamey. I don't care if I'm working fewer and fewer people right now. I, I don't even. I don't even say dating. I don't even say dating. I can't even say I'm dating. You know, it's just like. It's just like, you know, because I can't, you know, it's like, a friend of mine, he's my age, you know, he's like, he, one night he goes to me, hey, Rich, I'm going to go out and chase some women. I go, chase some women? Have you looked at yourself lately? Your chasing days are old. Your best shot is laying awake. You know, set some traps and check them every couple of weeks. different, you know. A couple of six-year-olds on a date. So a couple six, there's some interesting table conversation. So what you used to care about? <laughs> you know, I got one laugh. I got like basically one laugh. Maybe that's the way I go. You know, any comedian can make an entire room laugh at once, but make one person out of 200 laugh. That takes a special kind of skill. <laughs> that's kind of precision joking you're seeing right here, right now, my friend. It just changes, you know, more than change. When you're young, you know, you're, you're, how old are you, man? How old are you? Fourteen. 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 You're barely out of cycle. I knew I don't know. There's three people going, I apologize. I follow you there. I follow you there. That's fantastic. What are you doing here? Is this like a field trip or a class thing or something? Your mom trying to show you, like, ways of the wicked or something like that? Is, is this? I don't know. I'm just, I'm sorry. What? Looks like I missed an opportunity there, fans. How's your older sister there, son? Come on, own up to it, all right? You're close enough for rock and roll, all right? I'm not his mom. What do I look like? 
you you interested in comedy as a profession or something? Or? Uh, a He's a natural. He's a natural. Yeah. Natural at 14, man. Yeah. That's fantastic. I had at 14, I was just, you know, I wasn't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I had other skills that really could be brought in the public, but you know. <laughs> What he's doing at 14, we do at 14, not get killed at 15. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. That's it. You know, I started doing I'll tell you, I started doing this. This is in the book, but I started doing this in 1977. 1977, I was in law school in Washington, D.C. It wasn't a real law school, it was a, it was a, it was an international school law and screen door repair. <laughs> they want to give you a skill in case the law thing didn't work out. And I was in law school, a buddy of mine thought I was funny, and I thought I was funny, and we needed a third opinion. So he found a place where we do, we didn't even know if it was called stand-up, there were no comedy clubs all over. I mean, really, basically, it was just Los Angeles and New York, and he found this place, it was a coffee house, it was a coffee house called the Iguana Coffee House in Washington, D.C., in the basement of a church. It was 1977, it was basically a bunch of hippies trying to outlast dis disco, they were just in a bunker mentality, you know. <laughs> they were holed up down there doing a little entertainment for each other. And, and, I, and I came in and I came in and prepared to do my five minutes and uh, it was like a it was a show like a while it was like there was a singer and there was a dancer and then a poet I followed a poet I, we taped this I still have the tape a cassette like a big this is really like a big black cassette box like a shoebox size cassette like it was it was steam powered it was unbelievable cassette player you, know? <laughs> you had to warm it up for 15 minutes before you can start taping you know? and uh, yeah crank started crank started I don't think that's steam-powered. I kind of mixed metaphors there, but anyway. So, and, and, and I go out prepared. I followed a poet, and I, on the tape you can hear it. The poet's last line was, like the mango, we are ripe for the revolution. It's 1977. He was way behind on the revolution, but he was way ahead on mango. Nobody was talking mango in 77. In terms of fruit, he was a visionary. Really, he was out there. And, and I went up to perform, and I got my first intro. The guy that brought me up, this is the first intro I got in show business. He goes, all right, uh, this next guy is going to try something funny. <laughs> it's like more of a warning than an introduction, you know. I watch your purses a while, it's this guy going to try something funny. <laughs> and I go up there and I start talking. I got my first heckle. Two guys are down front playing chess, and one of them just turned and went, shh. That was my first heckle. <laughs> I was kind of like, I'm doing as quiet as I can, man. It's my first time. I'm like, and I did five minutes, I got one reaction, one reaction, at one point, one guy went, huh, that's all I got, that was it. It was like a starter laugh, nobody followed me, huh, no, you're right, that wasn't funny, I don't know what I was thinking. But I was so excited to get that one reaction, I took the tape player home, and I like played it over and over all night long, I was like, rewind, huh, rewind, huh, rewind, huh. I was like trying to piece it together in one full laugh, but it was like, I was studying like the Zabruder film, I was really trying to figure out what happened there, you know. I don't care if only one person got your of reference. That's all I was looking for. Another just a private little joke. Here. Right here, oh, here's the joke. Here's the first joke that I ever did that got any kind of reaction. This is the joke that got the hug for me. I said, I, I said in wrestling, you can always tell who's going to win the match just by the introduction. In professional wrestling, it'll be in the far corner in the orange tights at 187 pounds from Hackensack, New Jersey, Ed Arnold, his opponent from Parts Unknown, at 417 pounds. Wearing a bumper from 1955, Buick on his forehead, Haystacks Calhoun. Same way in high school wrestling. And 130-pound weight class from Oak Crest Regional High School, two-time New Jersey State Champion, two-time Christmas Tournament Champion, undefeated senior Captain Bob Siraki. His opponent from Pennsylvania High School, former Student Council Treasurer. First joke, that was it, you know. But 
but I was so I was so into it. I was just I was just if you've got to do it, you got to do it. I just had to do it. And my friend, he was like my unofficial agent. He would take me around and do like any place he could find me to perform. I performed. I was I was a buddy of mine had a band. I'd go into band breaks in the bar. And he found one time he found a place. He goes he goes hey Rich, there's a there's a talent like over in Southeast Washington at a place called the Gay Cabaret. And we and he go I go we'll go. Well, we yeah, we didn't know we didn't know. We I thought gay like nineteen. You know, like 1890s gay or like the Flintstones, like a gay old time. We had no idea. This was 1977, man. The closet was full. Nobody was out of the closet in 77. <laughs> the only people who got popped out of the closet was overcrowding. You know, Liberace, bam, he was out. You know, that was like, <laughs> Nobody, nobody. We didn't know, man. We show up, you know, and it's like, it was a gay nightclub, you know, and the guy was a really nice guy. And the guy was there. We came and so said, we, we came to do the, the talent thing. He goes, listen, fellas. Normally, it's like no problem. Anybody can go perform. But tonight's ladies' night. And again, we're close. We go, ladies' night? Fantastic. We'll be the only guys there. You, you get what's happening here, right? On. So it was lesbian ladies' night, what it was, you know. So I go, I don't care. I go on stage. There's like 200 lesbians back in there. And I'm exactly the guy they're trying to get away from, you know. Like I'm a straight, whacked, way up, white male guy, you know. And I walk, and I'm doing my comedy. And comics will tell you, I mean, I only have this little act I'm doing. And, and comics will tell you, there's, there's bombing. There's bombing where the audience is kind of like, you know, they're not really into it and all. But this was like, you could feel, you could feel the anger. I could feel it. I could feel the room temperature dropping, dropping, dropping. Like I could see my breath start to form, man. It was like... You know, and I'm bombing, and bombing in a way I never experienced from. Because I'm like, and at one point I just blurted out something. I said, "Well, I guess I'm your worst nightmare." And they laughed, but I was so raw and stupid. I didn't take that as my exit line. I should have said, "Thank you, good night." I just looked at as encouragement to continue, right? <laughs> so I start up again, and I swear, this woman down front didn't say where she stood up, walked up, took me by the elbow, and led me off. That was it. <laughs> it was a mercy killing. I really thank her for it. I, I'd still be there talking right now if she hadn't done that, bro. But I was into it, I was just doing it, and there was nobody, I mean, I'm, I'm, one guy was running around D.C. at the time I met, and was doing it, it was a guy named Lewis Black, you might know Lewis now. Lewis and I met, and we were, there, there was no place to do it, we were just running around doing it. But we were doing it, you know, I was just doing it. And one night I was hanging out at a place called the Child Harold, it was a, it was a nightclub in, in Washington, D.C. that had live music, and um, Springsteen played there in 72. It was a small little stage, he told me when he played there, like half the band was off the stage in the audience, you know. And, but it's a little place, but it was a tight place, and I was hanging out there, and my friend was a bartender, and he told the owner that I was doing comedy, or whatever I called comedy at the time. And the owner came up to me one night and said, I heard you're doing comedy. I said, yeah. He said, well, I got this band coming from New York next week, and I'll give you $50 to open for them. Well, first of all, I was like, $50? You're going to pay me, pay me $50? you pay me? I'm doing it. I didn't ask for the band, but I didn't care. See, it was a good deal for him because the band had a recording contract which required him to have an opening act and a band would cost him four to five hundred and he was only paying me fifty, so it was a smart move. But I showed up the next week and on the marquee it said, from New York City, the Ramones. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know anything about the Ramones or punk. I, this is 1977. I'm still in my like, post-war in Zevon, kind of pseudo-hippie, painter pants, long hair. I didn't know. I walk in, it is packed with every angry young man in the tri-state area, man. It was like all, I'd never seen shaved heads and mohawks and safety pins through the cheek and chains wrapped around the neck and down through the scrotum and up back up and wrapped around again. And the whole energy was like, and I go back to the bar and the club owner's like, they're gonna kill you, man. You are not gonna make 15 minutes in front of this band. I said, I'm gonna make the 15 minutes because to me it was like a rodeo event. I'm on that bull to the buzzer goes, you know. I'm getting that $50, man. I'm from New Jersey, that $50 is mine. He goes, you won't make five minutes. I go, double or nothing, you'll make five minutes. I said, I'll take it, man. I'll take that bet. 
So they introduced me. I don't know what they said in the introduction. I know all the audience heard was, ladies and gentlemen, not the Ramones. <laughs> they booed me. It was a small club. I had to walk right through the middle of the crowd to get to the, the stage. The stage was even smaller, so they loaded the ground. I mean, I walked through it. It was like a biblical scene. They're just like, oh, oh, you suck. You suck. And they're like throwing stuff at me. And I get up there. I start doing my little act up. Anyway, I'm going to me to pause for a laugh. It was a wall of booze. It was like a Phil Spector wall of booze coming at me, man. And I just kept doing my act. And at one point, I guess I was up there a minute or two, one of the guys had had enough and he just took, he had a mug of beer. They had mugs of beer and he just shot his beer at me and hit me with a beer, you know. And I just shook it off like I was a dog coming in out of the rain. Anyway, right back to back. Anyway, my mom said, I just, <laughs> I just had this act from A to B to C. I couldn't do any improv off of it. I couldn't do any special pump material I didn't have. I just had this act that went from A so I didn't move on to first beer, so the guy next to me said, let's see who does with this beer. And he hits me with a beer. And pretty soon the whole audience was into it, man. They, they got real organized. It was like a deli. They took numbers there. <laughs> My buddy told me it was unbelievable. Like, they hit me with a beer. He said it was the most schizophrenic show he'd ever seen in his life, you know? I'd get hit with a beer, the whole audience would cheer, and I'd start talking, they'd boo. It was like, yay, boo! Yay, boo! And I'm standing on stage with like the drum kid right back at me and the amps right next to me. And so the beer's flying everywhere. And the club owner figured out real fast this was not really good. So he's in the back room. He's just waving the money. All right, come get your money. All right, come on, come get <laughs> And I leave the stage. I didn't say like, well, thank you, good night. I just bolted, man. And I go through the audience and I go back. And there was no dressing room. There was just a, a, a kitchen behind the bar. And I go in there. And the remote just standing there waiting to go on. And I never seen these guys before. You know, tall there. Long hair, the guitars are waiting to go on. And I come back and I am soaked, soaked from head to toe with beer, man. I mean, soaked. And one of Ramones looks at me and goes, cool act, man. <laughs> like, that's what I do, you know. I'm just the human beer sponge. <laughs> He's not funny, but he sells a lot of beer, this guy. But I was doing it, man. I was, I, and that was all, all the work I got when I first started because I was in Washington, D.C. and I, I didn't know any other people were doing it anywhere and I was getting work opening up for bands. And I, and I had a lot of work. I opened up once for uh, Peter Tosh. You ever, ever hear Peter Tosh? He was one of the original whalers, Bob Marley. And uh, I got a chance to open up for him once and um, it was in Washington, D.C. It was a Lizard Auditorium. It was a couple thousand people and I was really excited because I really loved the whalers and Bob Marley and I was really excited to open up for Peter Tosh. A friend of mine, Rich Hall, another comedian, had opened up for him the weekend before in Philadelphia. He called me up and said, listen, man, I opened up for Tosh. I know you're doing it. So I said, Jason, listen, stay away from backstage, man. Stay away from backstage. Don't go near backstage. I got a contact eye. I can hardly do my act. <laughs> and I thought, well, Rich is not like me. I've built up a certain immunity over the years, you know, and I would be able to handle it. I was really worried about it, you know. So I'm backstage at the end of the show, and they usually spot me out like this, you know, this white guy pacing, nervous, smoking, you know. They, somebody probably told him the opening act, and I'd never been around Rastafarians. I'd never seen the dreadlocks or anything. So one of the guys just goes, hey, funny man, come over here. I walk over, he hands me a burning baseball bat. <laughs> I'd never seen a joint this big in my life, man. I didn't know how to hold it. So am I too high on the grip? Am I too low? Should I... Smoke like a saxophone or play like a flute? I had no idea, man. All I know is, man, I never, and, and, I, and this was Jamaican, Jamaican weed. I never, I got, I never even heard me. I was just smoking like ragweed. We got, it was just stuff they pulled out of the ditch in Mexico to spray right on it instead of north. I had no idea, you know. You know and that's why you, back then we have to hold it. Remember that? They'd go, hold it! Hold it, hold it! Hold it, hold it! 
getting high from the THC or lack of oxygen in my brain, you know? But this stuff, man, all I know is I took two hits, the next thing you know, I was being introduced, I heard it like I was underwater, you know? My buddy told me I came out, I laughed for 15 minutes, and I left. That was a show. The only thing that saved me is they were as high as I was, man. They laughed at what they thought I was laughing at. <laughs> You're gonna get a big education tonight, I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, I eventually found out, you know, that um, uh, a friend of mine, she was um, uh, uh, from New York, and she said, she came to see me one night doing it around town, she said, and DC said, you know, there are, there are guys, there are comedy clubs where young guys like you are doing this up in New York City. And I didn't even know it, so I went up to New York City. We, she took me up there in New York City, and we, we, there were three clubs up at the time. There was Catch a Rise and Star in the Upper East Side. There was the Improv down in Midtown, and there was a comic strip. But we couldn't get in the Catch a Rise and Star in the Improv. We got in the comic strip, and I remember uh, sitting there and uh, in the crowd, and there were like five comics, and each comic, they were all sitting there real cocky. It's like, well, I'm funnier than this guy. No, no, I'm funnier than this guy. Then the guy came on, he had horn-rimmed glasses, and he had braces, and he had this tight material, man. He was so funny. And it was young Jerry Seinfeld. I found out later because I met him. And I was like watching him going, oh, I got a lot of work to do, man. He <laughs> had killer material then. You know, I was like, oh, this guy's good. But I came, eventually moved up there. And those are all the guys from my generation that I ended up working with. And I'm just talking about my generation. Thank you. One who fit. That's all I was looking for. You know? So I was working up there in New York City. But again, this was 1979 when I moved to New York, and nobody was making any money. We all had like straight jobs in the daytime, and I was living down in the, in the <laughs> I'll tell you this story. I was living down in East Village, which was, this was not, if you go to New York City now, this was not the New York City you'll see now. This was like, every other building was abandoned. It was, um, uh, it was just, it was just like, almost like a war zone. And I lived in a basement. <laughs> I, I switched part. My, my buddy had auditioned for the Springsteen's E Street Band, and he lost out the drummer position to Max Weinberg, so he was sick of music business. He said, I want to switch apartments here in D.C., I'll give you my New York apartment. And it was a basement down on East 9th Street in, in Alphabet City in, in the Lower East Side, and, and it was, wasn't really, I mean, it was like, it was a bad apartment, and he left a 22 caliber pistol for me. He said, that was like the first ten I should have taken. He said, you might need this, you know. <laughs> Does anybody ever give you that for a housewarming gift, you know? <laughs> so my, the bed was right by the, the there was a window. There was in the, it, was, it was below, it was a basement, so there was, a, there was like a little thing, like a, I don't know, an opening, and, there, and the, the, you'd see the street up there, the sidewalk, an opening, and, and my bed was on the platform right by the window. And one night it was like, July, where it was so hot, it was so hot, I had the window up and I had this bar, they had this gate, the gate that was supposed to, you know, like a security gate right of the window, and I was so crazed uh, that I just unlocked it and opened it to think I could get more air in, you know, right, <laughs> screened, it, it, it was insane thought, but I just remember like four in the morning, this, this, I felt this thing, and there was a guy crawling in through the window at the bottom of my bed, right, so I pulled the gun around, and he looked at me and went, sorry man, thought it was my place, <laughs> and I was like, that's quick thinking, man. That's a line. I mean, that's a good line. You know? He backed right out, man. Just so cool. Oh, because he always enters his window, you know. That's okay. And my girlfriend, who moved up from D.C., was living for a while before she moved back to Italy. She was from Italy, and uh, she was living for a while. And one night I was doing a gig with Bill Maher. Maher had to remind me of the story because I forgot about it. And, and uh, we were doing this gig, and, and uh, this was pre-cell phone, you know, so she found out where the gig was and called me. The guy says, 
right right before I'm going on, he says, you gotta get the phone to your, your girlfriend's on the phone, I go on the phone, she goes, there are rats, there are rats in the apartment, rats everywhere, I'm in the bed, get home as fast as you can. So I did a quick show on Bill Moore and I beat it back to the city, you know, and I went into the, that now I'm like, I'm, I'm half drunk, maybe more than half. <laughs> Somewhere, well, I got into the apartment, that was good enough, I was drunk, but good enough to get in the apartment. I got into the apartment and she was in the bed and there were like, I saw like four or five rats in the apartment. Now I'm crazy, I pick up the 22 and I just start shooting at the rats. <laughs> like I'm not thinking, ricochet, I just shoot her and she's screaming, she's screaming and I'm shooting at the rats. And the rats went into this hole, and I, I stuffed a bunch of rags in the hole, and then we were like celebrating, you know, we fired up the bong, and we're like, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm the big man, I'm the big man, the rat, I got rid of the rats, man, you know, I'm big man. And all of a sudden there's a pounding on the door, there's a pounding, and it's like, New York City police, New York City police! And I thought it was one of my neighbors goofing around, right? So I did a line I always wanted to do, I said, you'll never take me alive, copper! <laughs> Somebody had heard her screaming and gunshot naturally, think it might be a problem. <laughs> so they come in, and I'm so stupid, I just go, I tell them what happened. Well, there were rats, there were rats, and I shot them with this pistol, you know, and, there was a, and I'm holding a bong in one hand and a pistol in the other. <laughs> and these are cops in the 70s, they're like, they're just going, like, wait, 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 tell me, tell me this story again. Well, there are rats here, and I shoot them with this pistol, and the, and the cop takes the pistol and he says, you were shooting rats with this gun? You're shooting New York City rats with this gun? I said, yeah, he said, you gotta get a bigger gun than this. <laughs> and he just pockets a gun and leaves, man. And uh, later on, I figured, like, uh, uh, Rick Newman, who wouldn't catch Roger's door, like, we sent the cop, like, a bottle, and he said, I, I know how to take care of it, and they found out, because they cut me a break, because I, I could have been in jail, because I didn't even know about the gun laws in New York, you know, it was crazy. And he just, he sent us a whiskey, he found out, he goes, the cop was so relieved, he didn't have to, like, find a dead body, you know. He was, like, so happy, he's like, whatever, you know, he's like, yeah, give me the gun, I'm out of here. It was fantastic, it was nice. But there was no way to make money, we were, we were barely making any money. The guy, uh, I always wear, this is what a tie, this tie is from Rodney Dangerfield. Remember Rodney Dangerfield? Yeah. I've got no respect, no respect, I've got no respect. you got to Google this guy, I've got no respect, you know. I went to see the doctor, he said, i got six months to live. I said, I want another opinion. He said, you're ugly too. <laughs> so Rodney had a club, I always wear, this is a tie for Rodney, I'll tell you, I got this, and this is um, a tie class for my dad, I always wear a tie for Rodney. And my dad, my dad was like the funniest guy, I mean, he was like an inspiration, he was a funny guy, off the cuff funny guy. Uh, I remember one time I, I was about 19, uh, still five years older than you, I can't even believe that. Yeah. I was about 19 and I was out uh, uh, partying with my buddies one night and I broke my foot in a bar and uh, I came home in the morning and my dad was getting ready to go for work, he's having breakfast. I came in the front door with a cast on my foot. My dad's like, what up, boy? I said, well, I was, in a, I was in a bar and I was dancing and some guy came down on my foot and he broke it. He said, well, dance with women, they're lighter. <laughs> off the cuff at 8 in the morning, anything? <laughs> so Rodney had a club up, up on the Upper East Side in New York City. Rodney had a club, and he would pay us. He would, it was almost like a scholarship fund, because he didn't really need us, but he'd pay us young guys to go perform at his club, like when he'd have proms come in at, uh, from 12 to 4 in the morning from, from the island or, or, or the Queens or whatever, prom season, or just a regular anytime during the year. When one of the guys from his generation would finish the show, like a Jackie Mason or Jackie Vernon or David Fry or any of these kind of guys, 
would finish the show, they'd still have audience left over from 12 to like three or four in the morning. So he'd say, you guys could win and do comedy for him. And we'd try to sell him a couple more drinks and he would pay us like 50, 75 bucks to perform. And you'd have to hold the stage until the next comic came. And one night I was up there and it was just really tough work. It was just gladiator work, man. It was just, it was brutal, man. It was just a chair and a whip, man. It was just, you, you just, there was just New York City drunk hecklers and they, they, they you know, they come after you. Just had to, I did my strategy just only just put one of them up on a cross and everybody else would go, you know, and I, I bury them. I just bury them loudest mouth and that was my strategy. And one night I was up there and the next comic was real late so I had to stay on stage a long time. And I just held the stage and you can hear Rodney laughing in the back. Because comics love to hear another comic struggling, you know. It's funny with them. You know, and Rodney would sit in the back and laugh. He'd go, hold on, man, hold on. You could hear him laughing. And so one night I came off stage, and Rodney came up to me, you know. And Rodney, if you know anything about it, he used to wear a suit and tie on stage. When he came off, he'd take that off and put on a robe, especially because it was his club. And uh, But he wouldn't put anything underneath the robe, and he wouldn't bother to close the robe, you know. So a lot of times when you saw Rodney off stage, you saw Rodney off stage. You know? So he came up and he said, hey, kid, you're all right, man. All right, man. All right. Now hold that stage, man. You're all right. Man. Hey, you want to do some cocaine? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> cocaine with Rodney sounds like my idea of showbiz, you know. So Rodney, we go down to his office, you know, and um, we start doing cocaine with Rodney. And this is, I don't, I don't, I don't, this is, I can tell you where this, this is more to the story here, but I'll just tell you, right, at that point, uh, my first lesson was um, um, that there's different types of cocaine out there that I didn't know. This was celebrity cocaine, celebrity drugs I was doing. I was doing street cocaine that was so cut with baby laxative that kept me more regular than high, you know. <laughs> this was like real, this was a different kind of thing. And, and we're, we're, we're talking, and I had Rodney's ears, so I want to get advice from him. I said, hey, Rodney, you know, I, I want to know how to get better. How can I get better at comedy? He says, well, you're going to tape yourself. Do you tape yourself? I go, no, I can't tape myself. I sound like an idiot, you know, and I can't stand and listen to tape because I sound stupid. Well, of course you're stupid. You're a comedian. <laughs> what do you think? You're a brain surgeon idiot. Listen to yourself. The audience will tell you what's funny. They'll tell you. Every, every time, they'll tell you what's funny. Listen to them, man. I mean, individually, maybe a ragged text. It was a group of genius. <laughs> Great advice, you know. The other thing I, I learned that night is because uh, we were doing cocaine off the top of a glass table, and every time I bent down to do a line, I could see Rodney's nuts hanging underneath the table there. <laughs> Some other lesson was no such thing as free cocaine. That's also what I learned that night. <laughs> but the whole the whole point of doing it back then was was to get on a Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which was the whole goal, you know. Back then, we tried to get on a Tonight Show, so I learned to work clean because Seinfeld was like he he hit me to that, you know. So you got to work clean, so you got to you know obviously I'm not doing that tonight, you know. But you had to work clean, and, and that way you get on the Tonight Show. And I really worked up in that, and I got on the Tonight Show, and the first time I went on, I was, um, I, I, I did very well. I got, uh, there was those three signs you get from, from Johnny Carson back then. You get one, wave you over to the, to the couch, which was the best you could get. Or you get this sign, which was okay, you'll come back another time. But if he was tapping his pencil on the desk, that's like a drum roll to execution man. <laughs> you weren't coming back, you were done. You know? So the first time I got one of these, you know, and I came off stage, and they, grab me, he's wait right here, you're gonna meet Johnny, I got a picture with Johnny, and Johnny said, you're a funny young man, and it felt good, and they gave me a beer, and I like, fantastic, but I was really into my, uh, my, my alcoholism, my drug addiction, I was drinking a lot, doing a lot, and so they said, you come back in two months, you'll do the tonight show again, and get ready again, now I'm hanging out with Sam Kennison, I don't know if anybody remembers Sam Kennison, he was, yeah, Sam was a preacher, who turned into a comedian, so Sam and I are hanging out, and, um, and it wasn't good, it wasn't good for either one of us, man. Uh, we were doing a lot of gigs together. We were, we were hanging out. We went to so right before I'm doing my second Tonight Show. We go see this um, this group called Striper, which was a uh, heavy metal band for Jesus. The first one that really came out there. We went watched them in concert, and the, and the, and, the, and the singer came out. And he opened the show by going, "You know, Jesus was the first rock and roller." 
And I thought, wow, man, you put the Son of God in the show business, you know. I mean, and so I, I said, if Jesus was the first rock and roller, you know, he must have had an agent. I'd like to see Jesus talking to his agent. You got to get me out of the hills and valleys. I'm dying out there, man. Book me into the temple. That's where the money's at. Get me into the temple. Jesus, you young kid, you forget. I had you booked in the temple last year. Open Messiah night. What do you do? You walk in the first thing and knock over the money changers table. I can't get your book back in there. Come on, work on your act. Work on your act. Moses, 40 years in the desert. Not a peep out of him. He worked on his act. He worked on the closing. He had something going on. You got to do something. I mean, the water, the wine, the walking water, that's good. But you got to have some big closure. You got to have something. All right, nail me to a cross. You got something there. That's something. <laughs> Sam and I love that, so I'm doing a tonight show. Have my set, you have your set set, you know. And Sam's like in my ear every night. We're up late, we're doing things we shouldn't be doing. He says, You gotta do that Jesus bit, man. You gotta do that on tonight show. You gotta do that Jesus bit, man. You got no guts if you don't do that Jesus bit. So I walk in the day of the show, and Jim McCauley was the booker. He says, um, Ready to do it? I said, Yeah, I got a new bit. I gotta do this new bit. I gotta change my set. I gotta do this new bit. This, this Jesus talking to his agent. And I do the bit for him in the dressing room. He goes, You can't do that, man. <laughs> There was a guy named, uh, uh, I think his name was Barney Clark. And he, he was uh, the first artificial heart recipient. Right? It happened at the time. You remember him, right? I said, what well, they said, they put in this 800-pound machine hooked up, but that was the artificial heart. 800-pound machine. They said, it may affect his life. <laughs> He's strapped to an 800-pound machine. It's got to affect his bowling for sure. <laughs> He's got to have four guys pushing down the lane with him. You know, He's got to... And then I did a thing about the defibrillators. I mean, the things they save your life with the defibrillator paddles, man, they're scary looking, man. Do you ever see them when they, they say, they, everybody backs away and they go clear and they hit that thing and a body jumps up? I mean, you notice some sort of sadistic doctor going, crack it up, let's see how high we can make him jump. <laughs> so I talked Macaulay and let me do those two jokes. You know, I, I, I was so on him and so crazy, you know, and Kenison's in the corner of the room just cackling, yeah, that's good, yeah, that's good, that's it. That's it. So I go out there and do those two jokes and it goes okay in the audience, but when I come off stage, I come behind the curtain after the set, right? Macaulay grabs me, man. He's like, we gotta go, get in the dressing room. He gets in the dressing room. He says, Kenneth, get out of here, everybody get out of here. He says, you stay here, don't move to me, right? Don't move. And I, I sat there for like a half an hour and finally came and said, Johnny hated those jokes, man. Those last two jokes he hated, I shouldn't let you do them, man. They're heart attack jokes. Johnny smokes four packs a day. He's in morbid fear of a heart attack, man. You, you gotta wait here until Johnny leaves, man. He doesn't wanna see you again. You are done. I said, I am done, man. My career is over, you know. I am done. So I, I, I got sober a couple months later, and um, I, 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 there, there's a period of time, and this is, oh, this is where I met Tony. This is where I met Tony in 85, because when I first started coming back sober, trying to work sober, like I always worked high, you know. So when I first tried to come back sober, um, I had a hard time being funny sober. I would get angry and throw the mic down and walk off, and Bud Freeman every night would give me another set. Next night he said, come back at 10, got you know, tomorrow night, see you tomorrow night. Trying to be funny again. And one night, this time I met Tony. Tony's in the audience, nobody's laughing. I'm up there ranting angrily, and Tony starts laughing. I look at him and I go, what are you laughing at? <laughs> He's like, I don't know, it's a comedy club? I don't know. <laughs> So I, I, I thought I was never going to write another funny joke, and I, I, and I was sober, and I, and I was smoking a lot of Camel non-filters, like my dad just was smoking a lot of cigarettes, and I was like, smoking too many cigarettes, this guy says, well, try running. If you run, maybe you can cut down the amount of cigarettes you're smoking. So I used to run, but I, I'd run with, like, cigarettes in my socks, you know? I'd, like, run for 30 feet, stop, have a couple of puffs, you know? But eventually I started running, and I was running one day, and I wrote the first joke I'd written sober. It was the first joke I wrote, and it landed complete. Like a lot of times comics will tell you they'll get a joke, and they'll get part of the joke, and then the rest of it comes later or something. This one landed complete. And I, I was in a relationship, and I said, 
I was in a relationship. I said, you know, relationships, you, you got to work through those moments. It could happen any minute of time, any time. Those, those moments in a relationship where one second you look at the other person and think to yourself, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And your next thought could be, how can I fake my death? <laughs> and I couldn't wait to get to the improv. Like, try it. And I did it. I got a big laugh. And I was like, broke clear. And I started writing lots of new material about men and women relationship stuff. And Jim McCulley, the booker, came up to me one night. And he said, you know, I've been watching the last six months, man. You're a totally different guy. You're not as angry as you used to be. And, and you're working real clean and real sharp. And I like this new material you're doing. I'm going to try to get you back on a Tonight Show. I said, well, fantastic, man. I'd love to do that. He said, yeah, you need to do a Merv Griffin first, you know. Merv Griffin was a daytime talk show like Ellen. So he gave me like a minor league rehab assignment, you know. <laughs> like in baseball. Go back and see if you can play okay in the minors, and then we'll get you back to the majors. So I'm doing a Merv Griffin. Now, this is a true story. This is, so I'm Merv Griffin, and I, if I, I know if I do own this Merv, I'll get to the light show again, and my career will be back on track. So I'm so excited. i got a really great set. I'm prepared. I'm backstage. And the booker for that show comes up to me backstage, he says, listen, the, the crowd today, the audience today is almost all Jewish people from this old Jewish senior citizen home. And uh, I go, okay, well, why are you tell me that? I'm just doing a merge set. It's like, uh, okay, I, I don't even know why that information, it didn't really matter to me. I didn't see why it was important. And then he brings me to the back, of, right behind the curtain, I'm the next performer, and uh, Merv Griffin's sitting out there with Diane Cannon, who's an actress, I don't know if you remember her, Diane Cannon, and she's promoting a movie. So Merv goes, oh, Diane, this new movie, this is very, very interesting, very important work. It's called Jenny's War. Let's see a clip. And then on the TV monitors in the, in the studio, for all the audience to see is a clip of Diane Cannon. She's now dressed as a concentration camp victim, and there's a Nazi, full-on SS Nazi, beating her up. And they end that clip, and Merv goes, great work, Diane. Let's bring out our next entertainer. <laughs> this is like, this is 1986. I'm like, I'm like blonde hair, blue eyed. I might as well have goose stepped out onto the stage, you know. <laughs> it comes to jokes. <laughs> They're in shock, man. They're in shock, man. I do my first joke, and I get nothing. I mean nothing. Nothing. And, and I remember what Jerry Seinfeld told me, he said, listen, if the joke doesn't work, just look at the camera, right straight, look at the camera, smile and nod, give a pause so they can add the joke, the laughter in later, you know, like canned laughter, add it later. So I do that, I go, the joke bombed, I went. And I do my next joke, nothing again, nothing, man. So I get up, like, and I, I'm doing this, like three, four jokes, and in my mind, and there's, a, there's another voice going, get out of here, man, run, run, man. Break, break, do something, get out of here, because I'm bombing a like, joke after joke, nothing. And they're just shocked. The audience is like, they're not even looking at me. They're like, they're, it, it's just, I, I, five minutes, I did my five minutes, I walked out, and I was like, I was soaked in the back. I was like, Albert Brooks and Network News, I was completely soaked. All my pants, my underwear, my pants, I soaked. I walked back, I'm like three foot tall, you know, I just kind of stumble off. And, and the booker goes, I, I, I tried it, I couldn't really tell you. I, I was afraid this might happen. I go, well, I, that's it, man, I'm done. My career's, I'm done. You know, and I, and, I, and, I, and I I just, I didn't drink, I didn't do drugs, but I just was like, I'm done, man, my career's over. I, I'm not gonna get back on the Tonight Show. And a couple nights later, I'm at the Improv in West Hollywood again, and Jim McCauley, the Tonight Show walk, booker, walks up to me, and goes, hey, man, I heard what happened to Merv. And I'm like, don't worry, I'm moving back to Jersey, you won't hear from me again, you know? And he goes, no, 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 man, no, 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 you did unbelievable, I heard you, you didn't break, you didn't blame the audience, you didn't crack, you did it, you took your beating like a man, and they're gonna put the laughter in later, it's gonna be fine, you're ready to do Tonight Show again. So I got the Tonight Show by bombing on Merv Griffin, right? <laughs> so, but the thing is, I have the tape, I have the tape, a friend of mine gave me the tape one time, and you can see it, like, you can see on the tape, I'll do a joke, 
right? You hear the laughter and they do cutaways of the audience, the audience is like. <laughs> so you don't even know who's laughing, man. You know? I'll tell you another, another story before I get out of here. I know this ended up just being old stories, but I think so. But uh, I did a Letterman show once. This shows you how like, things get really, you'll never see this on TV because it, but I did a Letterman show, I got bumped. You know what bumped is, there wasn't enough time for me. Uh, Billy Crystal going long, so they said, um, you know, we'll just bring you back, uh, fly you back from LA, it's cheaper. Another guest we're gonna keep is from England, so it's more expensive to fly her. <laughs> Everybody else heard that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I need to know the voice are inside or outside my head. Uh, doctor says the poor part of my recovery. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I, I said no problem. You know, I, I'll just sit here in the dressing room. You know, I watch the, the show in the green room. I watch it on TV. I'll just watch it. I'll eat my Chinese noodles, and I'm going to the airport in Newark and fly back to LA on a red eye. No big deal. You know, it's okay. I can bump. I still get paid, and they'll bring me back another time. So it's not a big deal. So uh, the woman who was the guest, the next guest. Uh, she had this dove backstage. Everybody pet the dove. This little cute little dove. I pet the dove. Letterman pet the dove. Everybody pet the dove. Now they're ready to bring her out there. Letterman's standing there in front of the table. There's all sorts of things on the table. And he brings her out. And she comes out. Little little woman from, from England. She walks over to David. She goes, David, I'm going to show you how to cook wild dove. <laughs> now she pulls this dove out. She, the dove is dead. She, the head just flops and starts swinging on a broken neck. She must have wrung its neck backstage before she brought it out. The camera's on tight on the dove. Tight, tight. The whole audience goes, <gasps> that looks at the dove, looks at the camera, goes, we'll be right back. <laughs> and the, the woman producer who had told me I was bumped five minutes before comes running in the green, she goes, is the comic here? Where's the comic? <laughs> and I'm the only person sitting in the green room, man. She is panicked, man. I said, right here, she goes, you gotta do something. I go, well, I can't bring that dove back to life, I can tell you that. <laughs> I go out there and do my little jokes, and they did. They introduced me, and they, yeah, I go out there and do my, my little material. And I'm like, great, because I'm going to tell you something. There's an old thing in showbiz that says, never follow an animal act or a child act. But it's my experience following a dead animal act. is not that difficult. I really am. <laughs> They're very happy to see you. Here's last story. My dad, I love my dad. Man. We get along great. We had a rough childhood, man. We had a rough time together. But he didn't like me to do stand-up comedy. No, no, back then, nobody, you know, I was like, when I started doing it, it was like, you know, there were 500 comics in the whole country. Now there are like 500 comics in Arizona, you know. There's, I mean, there's just comics everywhere. And um, my dad was like, I quit law school to go to comedy, man. I mean, he didn't, we didn't talk for years. I mean, people used to ask, what happened to your son? He goes, I don't know, he got captured by a religious cult. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I heard that's what he actually said. He said, yeah, I told him, I didn't know what to say, man. I didn't know what you're doing. He didn't have, there was no, nobody in showbiz in my family had a clue. So he never... Came to see me perform, and he never, never, ever uh, acknowledged it when I did the Tonight Show. Never called Letterman Show. Never called HBO Special. Never called nothing. Never called. And one day I'm doing a Tonight Show, and Don Rickles was on it, the guest. And I love Don Rickles, and Don Rickles used to come out to the Matador, the, the, the Matador theme, right? But I always looked at it like I felt like a gunfighter, you know. And I was like to come in like I felt like a gunfighter, and that was my metaphor in my mind. And this show, uh, um, I did my my time, and I had to look. Uh, I was never guaranteed. The, I do I do panels sometimes, sometimes I wouldn't. I'd look over to Johnny to see whether I got the signal to come over or there wasn't enough time, he'd just give me this. So I look over and he just gives me this, I go, great. Instead of turning and walking back to the curtain, for whatever reason I decided, I'd just back out like a gunfighter. I just put my jacket back on. <laughs> and I 
Jackie waved for, and, and back, and, and Johnny started laughing. You can hear him on the tape. He's laughing. He's like, it's great. And Ed McMahon goes, what's he doing? And Johnny goes, he's doing a gunfighter. It's great. <laughs> and my dad called me the next day, and he goes, you made Johnny laugh. You're really good at this. That was the monkey off my back, man. That's what I came from, you know. You know, anyway, I don't ever, I, I don't, I, I know I should end on a big laugh. I frankly don't see it happening right now. I, <laughs> I got caught up the emotion. I'll, I'll be selling books if you want to buy one. Thank you very much. <laughs> They send me their books. I don't have time to read their books. Their books stink, so I don't take their calls. I'm losing friends every week. But this one I read, and it is a fantastic book. I, I, I guarantee you'll enjoy it very much. Let's hear for all the comics we saw tonight. Nick Schneider, come back next week. Patty Freeman, Hedmontist. My name's Tony Griffin. Thank you very much. Good night. Oh, yeah. 